Well, it's a great pleasure to be back at Desert Springs Church. I think this is my third visit. Uh, I have fond memories of the first two, so thanks very much for inviting me back, and thanks for the kind words of introduction. Uh, my topic tonight is uh, the prophetic word, what preaching is and is not. And it's a subject that's dear to my heart on two levels. One, I'm uh, ordained as a preacher and I have the, the title of teacher at my local church, so preaching is something that is of concern to me personally, uh, and it's also of concern to me as the, the academic dean at Westminster, because Westminster exists as a seminary primarily to train men for the preaching ministry. So it is a concern that preaching uh, and the training of preaching should be a high priority. And there's a sense in which that uh, Reformed and Evangelical seminaries today probably do as good a job as they have ever done of teaching students exegetical and homiletical skills, which are the basic building blocks of good preaching. There are probably as many, if not more, fine commentaries available in English today than at any other period of the church's history. There's a wealth of books on preaching. There's podcast access to sermons, which would have been dreamed, undreamed of even ten years ago. So there can be no excuse for not learning from the world of preachers, emulating the strengths of the best and avoiding the mistakes of the worst. And yet still, it seems to me, preaching, good preaching, seems very hard to find. Part of the reason for this, I think, uh, has been analysed very effectively recently by a man called T. David Gordon in a book called Why Johnny Can't Preach. And... If you've ever read T. David Gordon, you'll understand this next comment. I say his arguments, while no doubt overstated at points, certainly have merit and point to wider cultural challenges facing both preachers and teachers. One of the major burdens of T. David Gordon is that the culture we live in, in terms of its emphasis upon sound bites, upon the visual, upon television, internet has really created an environment where the the basic cultural skills that would lead somebody to be a good preacher are absent. And, one might add, uh, the basic cultural skills that would make one a good listener to preaching are absent. And what I want to talk about tonight, of course, as I talk about preaching, I'm not just talking to preachers, I'm also talking to those who listen to preachers as well. So it applies, David Gordon's critique, if you like, applies to all. But I want to argue this evening that there may also be a theological reason which is part of the explanation for the poverty of good preaching today. But before I turn to that, I want to give two anecdotes from my own recent experience. And the first... I was at a theological conference in the UK, so it was a small one. I didn't feel guilty about being there. Uh, And one of the meetings there was billed as being a worship service. And just before the preacher entered the pulpit, he was introduced by the conference organizer as someone who was about to, quote, explain the Bible to us, end quote. I hate that. If anything, I don't want somebody to get up into the pulpit and explain the Bible to me. I want them to preach. There is no hint of proclamation in the notion of explanation. In the second, I was myself the preacher. And I looked, of course, at the order of service to see when I was meant to step up and uh, and preach the word. And I noticed it was meant to be uh, after the pastoral prayer. So as the pastoral prayer concluded, I started to rise from my seat. 
only to hear the following from the person leading the service. Okay, we'll take a break there. Go and fill your coffee cups and we'll reconvene in five minutes for the Bible reading. End quotes. If there's anything I hate more than hearing the Bible's about to be explained, it's probably that people should go off and fill their coffee mugs uh, before the <laughs> preaching. Thankfully, in the first scenario, the preacher did not explain the Bible. He actually preached. He proclaimed God's word. And then in the second, although my rhythm was somewhat broken, I managed to, do, to, to recover and do what was probably a half-decent job of proclaiming the word. Uh, the advantage, I think, of doing a fair amount of student work in my younger days uh, means that there's almost nothing that can shock me in church anymore. And I can put up with almost anything before I preach, providing it is not happening in my own church every Sunday. I remember preaching at one church where just before I got up to preach, the man said, oh, we have to have, we're having a liturgical dance before the sermon. Um, if there's something worse than coffee before a sermon, it has to be <laughs> liturgical dance. But I handle it. Uh, relatively adequately. But both incidents underline for me one of the major problems with contemporary preaching, something which accounts not only for debates about whether preaching is still necessary, but also, I think, for its often poor quality, even in churches which should know better. Preaching is not simply explaining the Bible. It is proclaiming the Word of God. And the failure to understand what the task is theologically will inevitably undermine the way it is practiced. If the preacher thinks he is merely explaining the Bible, he will be incapable of distinguishing what he does in the pulpit from what he might do in a lecture theatre, where application and exhortation are generally absent. And if he thinks he is merely facilitating a discussion, he will lack the confrontational authority that comes with a thus says the Lord. The church, and especially her preachers, but also her listeners need to understand the importance of both the theology of proclamation and of the proclamation of theology. Preaching, of course, was one of the hallmarks of the, Reforma of, of the Reformation. That's not to say there was no preaching in the Middle Ages. Uh, Bernard of Clairvaux, or as you would say, I think Bernard of Clairvaux, preached in such a way as to inspire a crusade. One does not inspire a crusade to the Holy Land by preaching unless one has both remarkable gifts in this area and lives at a time where preachers are significant. To stress the unique importance of preaching in the Reformation is not to deny its significance in earlier times. It is, however, to highlight the fact that preaching came to be a central priority in the Reformation in a way that it had not been during the medieval period. This was because the Reformers saw preaching as the principal means by which God made himself savingly present in the church in a manner that made salvation a reality. A quote now, chapter 18 of the Scots Confession, the chapter entitled, The Notes or the Marks by which the true church is discerned from the false and who shall be judge of doctrine. This is what the, the Scots Confession says. The notes of the true kirk, great word for church, that kirk, therefore... We believe, confess, and avow to be, first, the true preaching of the Word of God, in which God has revealed himself to us, as the writings of the prophets and apostles declare. Secondly, the right administration of the sacraments of Christ Jesus, to which must be joined the word and promise of God to seal and confirm them in our hearts. And lastly, 
ecclesiastical discipline, uprightly ministered, as God's word prescribes, whereby vice is repressed and virtue nourished. End quotation. Notice, preaching is the first mark, and it's also the most important, as both the sacraments and discipline, or we might say pastoral care, discipline has such negative connotations for us, uh, both the sacraments and pastoral care are dependent upon it. The implication, of course, is that preaching is not mere transmission of information. Were it so, it could be adequately achieved by reading. The communal setting and the proclamation of the word are critical to the reformers as these provide the context and the cause for the very creation of the church. Nowhere is this importance made more clear than in the very first chapter of the second Helvetic Confession. Heinrich Bullinger, he was the the, the, uh, reformer of Zurich after Ulrich Zwingli, produced what was probably the longest confession in the Reformation, possibly in church history, the Second Helvetic Confession. And here is how he describes preaching in this confession. Notice the very strong language. The preaching of the Word of God is the Word of God. Wherefore, when this Word of God is now preached in the church by preachers lawfully called, we believe that the very Word of God is proclaimed and received by the faithful, and that neither any other word of God is to be invented, nor is to be expected from heaven, and that now the word itself which is preached is to be regarded, not the minister that preaches. For even if he be evil and a sinner, nevertheless the word of God remains still true and good. like that last sentence in particular, because when you come to church on a Sunday, you don't know what your minister's been getting up to during the week. I mean, you don't. You you laugh, but you don't. Many people sit in churches where the minister is later exposed as an adulterer, living a double life of some kind. Isn't it wonderful to have the confidence that what you hear doesn't depend upon him behaving himself during the week? It depends upon his fidelity to the word. And if you're a preacher, isn't it great? You know when you get up into the pulpit, you have no natural right to proclaim these words to people. You know what you've got up to during the week. And yet you can have confidence. The word is powerful because it does not depend upon you. It depends upon the God who speaks. So, and brings us then back to preaching. Preaching, as I've said, is more than transmission of information. If it was just transmission of information, there are other ways of doing it. We tend to think these days it's a new idea that, you know, well, preaching's passe because of the internet or because of YouTube or because of Twittering or something. Well, Samuel Johnson, 18th century British wit and prophet of blunt common sense, said this. People nowadays, he said, got a strange opinion that everything should be taught by lectures. Now, I cannot see that lectures can do so much as reading from books from which the lectures are taken. Johnson's point is simple. If information is what is sought, there are better means of getting it than sitting and listening to somebody else. Thus, if we regard the purpose of the sermon and of preaching as primarily communicating pieces of information about God and Jesus we will very soon come to realize 
that the task can be performed far more effectively by providing reading lists for the people. Or, given the fact that we're often told that people don't read as much as they did in the past, videos, dramatic presentations, group discussions. The Reformation, however, held that preaching is more than just transmission of information. It is rather the confrontation of the people with God as revealed in his word. Luther makes this point eloquently by stressing that salvation, he uses this phrase numerous times, salvation is a word that comes from outside. It is not some kind of mystical experience which takes place in an inner private space and is incommunicable to others. But neither is it simply a case of learning about a state of affairs of the kind we see in the statements 2 plus 2 equals 4, or Napoleon died on St. Helena. Such statements involve little or no existential relation of the individual uh, to the individual who hears them. But to hear the death and resurrection of Christ proclaimed transforms the individual in terms of their own understanding of themselves and their relationship to God and the world. In other words, preaching is confrontational and transformative. Its end cannot be achieved as well by, say, reading a mere book of theology or sermons, or even, one might add more provocatively, the Bible itself. The word proclaimed has profound significance beyond the word merely read or remembered. Not that the Lord hasn't saved people using all of those other means during history, but primarily, it seems... It's the preaching of the word that does it. The reasons for this are numerous and we need to understand them in order to understand what we are doing when we stand up and preach or when we sit and listen to a man preaching. First and foremost, there is the biblical teaching that God is the one who is present in and through his words. We see this right at the start of biblical history when God speaks creation into being. His creative activity is described by Moses in Genesis 1 as that of speaking. There was nothing other than God. God spoke, then there was something else, the created realm. Further, just as God's speech inaugurated the first creation, so it is fundamental to the second, new creation. In Genesis 12, for example, God calls Abraham by addressing him in speech. Abraham is constituted as the recipient of the covenant, the father of the faithful, and the one through whose seed the great seed and heir of the promise will come. There are covenant ceremonies that surround this call, of course, but the speech of God is central in establishing the relationship. Just as the words, I do, are crucial in the ceremony of marriage, whatever other ceremonies might be involved I have to say, on the day of all days, uh, it's amazing how much more interest in the royal wedding there is in America than there is back home. You you guys fought a war just over 200 years ago to get rid of these people. (laughs) Now you're sort of importing them all back on your your TV screens. It's uh, quite, quite bizarre. I fled the country to get rid of them, and I see more of them here than I did back home. (laughs) But this kind of word emphasis continues throughout Scripture. While it is, of course, true to say that God is always present everywhere, there is a presence of God which is, we might say, merely, to use the sort of pretentious philosophical word, merely ontological 
in supporting creation and providence. And a presence which is special, powerfully connected to his mighty acts of judgment and salvation. This latter presence is not ubiquitous, as demonstrated by the fact that Scripture can actually talk of its absence. Thus, Amos 8, verses 11 to 12, points to the absence of God as a sign of judgment against his people and articulates this absence not in in terms of a famine, not of bread or water, but of the word of God. We might also point to other passages which hint at this same divine speech, uh, divine presence connection. For example, the desperate journey of the Shunammite to Elisha in 2 Kings chapter 4 is surely connected to the fact that it is the prophet who brings the word of the Lord and who therefore embodies God's saving presence at that time in Israel's history. Thus she must go to him and indeed must fetch him back to touch her son. His staff in the hands of his servant will simply not suffice because the salvation of God comes by his word. And at this moment in history, the word of God, God's saving presence, comes only through the mouth of the prophet, not his assistant carrying some mute stick of wood. One could think also perhaps of Elijah on Carmel. The absence of Baal. Baal doesn't speak. Baal is silent. I was struck by the noise on Mount Carmel. All these men making all of this noise all day long. And then suddenly it falls silent. That God is absent. The theme continues in the New Testament. In Mark chapter 1 verse 10, we are told that when Jesus, I think I preached on this last time I was here, we are told that when Jesus was baptized, the heavens were torn open. Though sometimes translated simply as opened, This is not a good rendering. The only other time Mark uses the word is in Mark 15.38 with reference to the temple curtain. To translate this latter passage as the curtain opened would be a wholly inadequate and inaccurate description of the event. Yet there are more than just linguistic arguments internal to Mark's gospel to lead us to favour the translation torn open. It was apparently a commonplace of Second Temple Judaism that with the cessation of Old Testament prophecy, the Holy Spirit had stopped speaking directly to the people of God. And specific traditions relating to Isaiah 64.1 saw the tearing open of the heavens as the moment when the Spirit would descend upon the Messiah. Thus, when Mark describes Jesus' baptism in such terms, He is highlighting the fact that God is once again speaking to his people. Or we might say, God is once again present with his people in the person of Jesus Christ, in accordance with his great covenantal promise. And of course, the dramatic movement of the narrative at this point makes this clear. Since the tearing open of the skies is immediately followed by God the Father's verbal declaration and public commissioning of his son. So words then, crucially important for the saving presence of God in biblical history. Second point, in addition to speech being God's mode of presence, is the fact that God's word has been inscripturated. It's been written down in scripture. This is arguably a necessary part of the covenantal nature of God's plan of salvation. Covenants require words. 
And this goes a long way to explaining the continual emphasis on the writing down of words throughout the Old Testament. Isaiah 30 verse 8, Jeremiah 30 verses 1 to 2, Daniel 9 verses 1 to 2, Habakkuk 2 verses 2 to 3, all refer either to the writing down of God's words, to a divine instruction to write God's words, or to the reading of God's words which had already been written down. The inscripturated word is thus a normal, a normative thing within the Old Testament. It defines God's relationship to his people, and when read aloud, can involve the re-establishment of the same. 2 Kings chapter 23, Nehemiah chapter 8. You think of Deuteronomy, of course, the great sermon. The greatest sermon in Scripture is Moses' sermon in Deuteronomy. And it defines the relationship between God and his people. And it's written down. This continues in the New Testament where the phrase, it is written, is frequently used, not least, of course, by the devil and by Christ as they trade blows in the wilderness. It is surely very significant that the battle between Christ and the devil in the desert, similar to the battle between Eve and the serpent in the garden, of course, is fought over the meaning of God's words. The assumption on both sides being that these are normative and binding. Further, the command to write down the words of God is, I hesitate to comment on the book of Revelation with my colleague Greg here, but the command to write down the words of God is found throughout the book of Revelation. 111, 119, 2-1, 2-8, 2-12, 2-18, 3-1, 3-7, 3-12, 3-14, 10-4, 14-13, 19-9, and 21-5. They were just the ones I managed to pull out. There may be more. God's presence, God's speech, and God's word written are all intimately connected. The third point, in addition to God's word being spoken and written, is that God's word has also always been preached. As I say, the greatest example of this in the Old Testament is Moses, the paradigmatic prophet of ancient Israel. Like many subsequent preachers, Moses is acutely aware of his inadequacy for his task. When commissioned in Exodus 4, his lack of confidence leads the Lord to assure him that though it is he, Moses, who physically speaks, it will be the Lord who speaks through him. Later, his preaching forms part of his intermediary function between God and the people. When the latter are so terrified at Sinai that they beg Moses to speak to them on God's behalf. They don't want God to speak directly to them. What Moses is not doing at any point is merely communicating information from God to the people. His speeches are definitive of the relationship that exists between God and his people and are constitutive of that relationship as well. These points hold true throughout the Old Testament with the prophets being the other obvious examples. Their words do not simply explain the present or predict the future. They continually confront the Israelites with the identity of God as he has revealed himself to be in his dealings with the people. And therefore they reveal the people's own identity in relationship to God and the moral demands these place upon the people. The unnamed prophet in Judges 6, 8-10 is a good example of this. 
He comes to remind an apostate people of who God is, the one who brought them out of bondage in Egypt, put their enemies to flight, and gave them the promised land, and thus of who they are and what they are obliged to do, not fear, in this case, the pagan gods of the land. In context, his word is not simply informational. Yes, it contains information, but it cannot be reduced to information. It stands as a sentence of condemnation, of guilty against the nation. It is also rooted, of course, in the word of God as it has been written in the Torah, where the exodus and indeed the consequences of syncretism were laid out in great detail. The prophet brings a word from the Lord here, which in a sense merely expounds and applies what has already been written to the current circumstances. The emphasis on preaching continues in the New Testament, whose key figures, John the Baptist, Stephen, Peter, and Paul, to name just a few, along with, of course, Jesus Christ himself, are marked by their proclamation of the word. Stephen's sermon is particularly instructive, focusing on the identity of God, as he had revealed himself in his great acts of salvation in the Old Testament, as written down, and culminating in the work of Jesus Christ, a history which places such acute accusations and demands at the feet of the Jews that they stone him on the spot. He's not just conveying information. It's not just a lecture from Stephen. They know. You can imagine as he's preaching, the colour's beginning to rise, the pores are opening, and they're starting to sweat. This isn't just information. It's a finger of accusation pointed right in their face. Further, in 1 Corinthians, Paul rejects the ancient and, one might add, the modern obsession with aesthetics and emphasizes that it is not the style of preaching but what is preached, Christ crucified, that is vital. Of course, the King James Version famously misleads the reader by translating 1 Corinthians 1.21, it pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. The text is better rendered, I think, by the English Standard Version. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. In other words, it is the content, not the method of delivery, which is Paul's concern here. Nevertheless, it does not seem to cross Paul's mind at this point that the content would not be preached. And this is entirely consistent with the emphasis upon verbal proclamation which goes right back through the Old Testament. Indeed, the nature of the message, the proclamation of the cross, and the nature of the delivery preaching both seem to be closely connected to each other. There is, it seems, a fit between New Testament and Old Testament practice and the message which was to be communicated. Paul is really fulminating in some ways, I think, in 1 Corinthians 1, against those who emphasize technique at the expense of everything else. It's hard to see how the identity of God in his action in Christ and in the church could be more adequately expressed than by the use of words. In fact, the sermons in Acts and in the epistles indicate that the prophetic model of Moses, exposition, application, exhortation, rooted in God's revelation, is the standard. And as this action is clearly connected to a theology of God as a speaking God, the preacher simply cannot see his task as mere communication of information. 
Again, Paul's comments in 1 Corinthians are apposite here, where he is keen to emphasize that the power of what he has preached is rooted not in his eloquence or impressive presence, both of which he denies. I always find it hard to imagine that it wasn't somewhat enthralling to hear Paul preach, but he does say he's not that impressive. Certainly compared to the godlike individuals he seems to be opposing in Corinth. But the power lies rather in the demonstration of the Spirit. From a post-Nicene perspective, with Trinitarian language at our disposal, we might say that what Paul is describing is a dynamic rooted in the nature of God. Preaching brings men and women to God the Father via the actions of His Son, crucified, resurrected and ascended by the power of His Holy Spirit through the medium of the message of the history of God and its significance being verbally communicated by preachers. The information communicated is merely instrumental to the realization of fellowship and communion with God, which are the real end of preaching. And that remains the task of the preacher today, just as it was for Paul, the realization of fellowship and communion with God. In sum, there is a close connection between the nature of God, the nature of the Bible, and the act of preaching. God's creative and recreative action is intimately connected to his speech. The Bible is his speech in written form. And preaching is both central to God's action within the pages of Scripture itself, and thus to the pattern of church life as established in the New Testament. The Bible as God's speech is a prophetic book. And the church, as united to Christ, is a prophetic institution. This then brings us to the question of how one reflects this in one's preaching. In other words, how does one preach prophetically? Well, the first thing necessary is surely a solid understanding of the task in terms of its broad theological contours and purposes laid out above. The preacher must first understand what exactly he is doing in order to understand its basis, purpose and limits. For only then can he be prophetic in terms of the confidence with which he speaks. If he thinks he's merely communicating information, he won't be able to distinguish what he's doing from giving a lecture. And he will become absorbed primarily with issues of technique, perhaps even abandoning the medium as less effective than others. Yet if he thinks preaching is merely exhortation to practical action, he will be incapable of distinguishing the teaching of moral principles from the preaching of the word. And may well, if he is honest, not really understand why the Bible is the best book for the task and not, say, one of Aesop's fables or even the latest storyline from a television soap opera. It's very interesting to me that when theologians start recasting Christianity as, quotes, a way of life, often if they carry on in their theological careers and continue with that line of thinking, very soon they have difficulty in explaining, well, why is the Bible the unique book for that? There's plenty of other good books about how to live good lives. Whether Eastern books, mysticism, or American sort of self-help books. Plenty of other good books that can help you live a good life beyond the Bible. And one would have to say that many of the moral examples in the Bible, they don't look too great at first examination. If what I've said above is correct, then basic to good prophetic preaching will be the understanding that God is a speaking God that is spoken definitively in Scripture, and that he continues to speak 
through the faithful exposition of that scripture today. Not that the preacher is preaching in a way that he's directly inspired, coming up with new revelation, but the preacher speaks God's words to the extent that those words are regulated and normed by God's definitive revelation in scripture. If the preacher holds to these principles, he would have the confidence to do what he does every Sunday with authority, safe in knowledge that the growth of the kingdom does not depend upon his eloquence, but rather upon the action of the Spirit, using the words which the preacher himself has carefully prepared under the authority of the inscripturated word. That is not, by the way, to say that uh, a preacher should not be a good public speaker. John Chrysostom in the 4th century says that you know, the three things that a pastor needs, good grasp of doctrine, doesn't need to care about his public reputation, but he needs to be able to speak coherently. If you can't string a decent English sentence together, you're not called to be a preacher. You have to be able to do that. What I'm saying here is that the power of your ministry will not ultimately depend upon your eloquence, but clearly you have to be able to speak in whole sentences to communicate to people. <laughs> Further, and by inference, if I'm right, the current malaise in preaching must be seen as a crisis, not simply in the kind of cultural changes forged by the arrival of television, information technology, and pragmatic educational methods, so ably analyzed by T. David Gordon, but maybe the poverty of preaching might also be seen as a crisis in the doctrines of God and of Scripture, two elements of Christian theology which are obviously intimately related. If God has not spoken in the past, then there is no basis upon which to believe that he continues to speak through his revelation today. For this reason, it is crucial, I think, that theological education retains a central place for systematic theology. Far from being a speculative appendage to the task of ministry, systematic theology provides the basic definitions of God and his revelation that, understand, that undergird the understanding of Scripture and provide the theological foundations for understanding the task of the preacher. It's surely no coincidence that the current so-called hermeneutical crisis, indicated by the lack of confidence either in texts having meanings or in the ability of the human knower to discern such meaning, has coincided with a shift in many churches away from preaching-centered ministries to one-to-one counseling, small group discussion, an accent upon conversational language. The cultural moment is not conducive to preaching, but then the cultural moment is not to determine what is and is not true. The Reformation did not place the reading and preaching of Scripture at the centre because of the cultural momentum of the time. It did so because the God described in Scripture is a speaking God. If the act of preaching is driven by theological conviction rather than cultural preference and plausibility, prophetic preaching can only be done effectively in the power of and confidence in the Spirit. Paul's anti-aesthetic tirade in his letters to the Corinthians should not be read as a blanket attack on good presentation, clear argument and fine public speaking skills, all of which are helpful to the preacher and things greatly to be desired. Paul's point is rather that the Corinthians' mindset is so preoccupied with these things that they have lost sight of where the real power of God is to be found. Uh, Greg and I have a mutual friend, Bruce Winter, who's done a lot of work on the the social background in Corinth in the the first century. Numerous interesting things about the Corinthian church. One of them is the culture was 
The public speakers, they were the TV megastars of their day. Bruce has dug up all of these letters about people complaining about the screams they would hear when the the orators would go and have their chests uh, stripped of hair. So they look kind of smooth and cool when they, when they preach, and they would work out in the ancient equivalent of the gym. The orators were the, the Hollywood heroes of their day. Well, and if I was speaking on something else, one could easily draw parallels with you know, celebrity conversions. Or we seem to get much higher profile than street sweeper conversions in the church. There's an interesting uh, cultural issue there. But we, what I'm saying here is we shouldn't underestimate What's going on in Corinth? These are the Hollywood celebrities of their day that the Corinthians are looking to. And more importantly, they're judging Paul by that standard. And they're seeing that Paul's ministry must be weak. Probably he's got a bit of a paunch. He's got a hairy chest. He doesn't work out. All of these things that he fails by. All of these things indicate that his ministry lacks a certain power. But to return to the statement of the Second Helvetic Confession... The word truly and legitimately preached is the word of God. We might hesitate to use quite such unequivocal language today. I think it's more problematic today. I think I know what Bullinger was trying to say today. His close identity perhaps is is expressed slightly problematically. But his underlying point is sound. Preaching carries a power which is ultimately divine in origin. The power does not inhere in the words themselves... But as those words are seized by God's Spirit and driven home into the hearts and minds of the hearers, that is what gives the preacher ultimate confidence in what he does. And that is what demands, and this is where it will pinch perhaps most of you sitting out there today, that is what demands that the congregation sit and listen. Testing all by Scripture, of course, but doing so with an attitude of humility and of those being addressed by one one who speaks for God himself. There is a difference, I think, between sitting and testing what the preacher says by Scripture from an attitude of suspicion, that you're wanting to catch him out, and an attitude of trust. Well, you've called this man. You trust him to expound the word faithfully. Yes, you check what he says in the same way that I check what the bank teller gives me when I go to take money out of the bank. I trust the bank teller, but maybe they'll make a mistake. There's a great difference in congregational attitudes to testing ministers by Scripture? Do you do it with an attitude of basic trust or an attitude of basic suspicion? I would say that the theology of preaching demands that unless you have very good reasons otherwise, you should basically listen with an attitude of what I would call critical trust, not critical suspicion. The Westminster Larger Catechism, question 155, expresses it this way. How is the word made effectual in salvation? The Spirit of God maketh the reading, but especially the preaching of the word, an effectual means of enlightening, convincing, and humbling sinners. Notice the existential language here. Of driving them out of themselves and drawing them unto Christ. Of conforming them to his image, subduing them to his will. Of strengthening them against temptations and corruptions. Of building them up in grace and establishing their hearts in holiness and comfort through faith unto salvation. I have students every year tell me the Westminster catechisms are boring. How can you read that and be bored? (laughs) The understanding of preaching is most significant. 
It relativizes all questions of method and contextualization, not rendering them irrelevant, but rather of secondary importance. And it gives the preacher confidence to do what he does. For ultimately, the effectiveness of his ministry is not dependent upon his personal competence, inner moral qualities, or even his a little dig at myself and my current audience in certain American contexts, his accent. I hope I still have an accent, having lived here for 10 years. I, I do dread going back home and being mistaken for an American at some point. Um, it's pretty grim to say it, but uh, when you come to America as British, everybody kind of loves you, or most people who haven't read Republicrat kind of love me. Um, but when Americans go to Britain, we, we're, we're kind of rude and we don't reciprocate, I'm afraid, and that's not something I'm proud of. Second, if the post-apostolic preacher stands in a line which goes back through the New Testament to the prophets of the old then preaching should be prophetic in content. What I mean by this should be obvious by now. It should involve confronting the world in which the preacher finds himself with the word of God as written in the Bible. This imposes various demands upon the preacher. First, for preaching to be prophetic, God's word should have priority in defining exactly what is and is not relevant. Of course, preaching should address needs. But those needs themselves must first be defined by the word of God. In God's act of creation, his word was the creative force and thus had priority. Creation was got what God said it was to be. So in recreation, the speaking of God comes first, defining the problem and then providing an answer. That is the case in the Gospels. It continues to be the case today. By definition, therefore, prophetic preaching cannot be preaching that merely takes up the priorities and emphases of the world around us and seeks to find some means of applying God's word to such. This is not to deny the need for contextualization, you know, setting, being aware of your audience, the context in which you're speaking. That it is to argue that contextualization can be a much overused and much overhyped term. At one level... It merely states the obvious. For example, preaching should be done in a way that takes account of the context. Thus, one does not preach in Urdu to a congregation made up of those who only speak English. And it's well worth avoiding the kind of gaffe described by Luther in the following quotation from his table talk. I'm incapable of talking for more than 41 minutes without mentioning Luther at some point. He says this, one should preach about things that are suited to a given place and given persons. A preacher once preached that it's wicked for a woman to have a wet nurse for her child. And he devoted his whole sermon to a treatment of this matter. Although he had nothing but poor old spinning women in his parish to whom such an admonition no longer applied. <laughs> Similar was the preacher who gave an exhortation in praise of marriage when he preached in an old woman's infirmary. End quotation. Such is clearly a case where a little bit of contextualization might well have had considerable benefit. Yet recent decades, with their preoccupations with diversity, difference, and various movements characterized as postmodern, have seen a veritable explosion in the contextualization industry. Thus, at another level, the overcomplication of matters of contextualizing can actually end up inverting the proper order of Christian thinking by placing the diversity of human context as the grid 
through which the word of God is to be interpreted rather than vice versa. The preacher must remember that the ultimate context of the world is the word of God and that the problems of humanity is defined by that word, alienation from God, rebellion against his rule, are the same all over the world, regardless of the way in which these might find specific manifestations in any given situation. One would presume that Luther would have regarded his anonymous preacher as just as incompetent if all he had done was describe the life of a poor spinning woman to his audience of poor spinning women. There has to be confrontation. Given the contemporary world's obsessions, of course, we're unlikely to be dealing with spinning women or wet nurses on a regular basis. But we have our own set of cultural fetishes. The words of Albert Moeller are apposite on this point. He says this, The rise of therapeutic concerns within the culture means that many pastors and many of their church members believe that the pastoral calling is best understood as a, quote, helping profession, end quote. As such, the pastor is seen as someone who functions in a therapeutic role in which theology is often seen as more of a problem than a solution, end quotation. Theology is often seen as more of a problem than a solution. The shift in understanding of the pastor's role to which Mola refers is part of the general shift from allowing the word to set the agenda rather than the world. Doctrine can only become part of the problem when the world becomes the context for understanding the word. When our questions and problems become the dominant theme of our thinking and when we thus judge relevance by our own autonomous psychological or sociological criteria. I'm going to miss out a bit of my talk, uh, talk here because uh, there's a good example from Scripture about relevance. I, mean, I don't know if, I, if I've said this here before. Second thief on the cross. If you go back to, if you go to the Gospel of Luke and look at the second thief on the cross. The second thief on the cross is often in church history, people like Erasmus I'm going to talk about tomorrow, uh, regarded the second thief as having just a sort of very minimal theology. And he's used as an example of somebody, you know, right at the very end, he just had this kind of nebulous trust in God, and Jesus said, it's okay, son, it'll be all right, I'll be with you in paradise. But if you actually look at what the second thief says, he talks about uh, the holiness of God. His mind is focused upon the second death, not the first death. He's hanging on a cross, and he rebukes the other thief by saying, come on, man, we're dying on a cross, but we're about to fall into the hands God is a consuming fire. He also acknowledges that he deserves to be hanging on a cross. Quite remarkable. The first thief is, you know, Jesus, get me down from the cross. The second thief is quite remarkable. He says, you know, we're hanging here because we deserve it. And then, interesting enough, he points to Jesus and he said, but this man has done nothing wrong. Not sure that we can extrapolate from that to saying he, he has a full understanding of who Jesus is and uh, his, his sinlessness. But he certainly understands the qualitative difference between his death and Jesus' death. And then, finally, the most amazing thing he says, of course, is, you know, remember me when you come into your kingdom. First thief, the religious rulers, the, soul, the, the, the soldiers, have all goaded Jesus with this. If you're the king, you say you are, come on down from the cross. Demonstrate you're the king by avoiding death. Second thief says, when you come into your kingdom, when you're crowned as king, remember me. 
Nothing about coming down from the cross. The second thief seems to understand that the kingdom, the crown is to come through the death. Now, why is that relevant to what I'm saying here? When did this, when did, when did this guy teach this? When, when did this guy learn this? Now, the scripture being quoted, we see, as, as Jesus is being led to Golgotha. But even the scriptures that's being quoted, if the thief had no context, he wouldn't have been able to make much of it. My guess is the, the second thief was taught this stuff when he was small. He heard it preached or taught in the local synagogue. Next question you've got to ask yourself is, well, how relevant was it to him? Well, the answer is he wasn't really relevant at all. You can imagine his mother, maybe his mother was still alive, and you can see her sitting somewhere, knowing that her son is, is being executed that day and crying and thinking, all of those, all of that attendance at the synagogue, all of those Bible readings we had with him, None of it had any effect. It was all irrelevant to him. He went off and, you know, he became a real rat bag. He says he's a thief, but more than likely he probably killed a Roman soldier or something. He, he committed some pretty heinous crime of rebellion to be crucified. Even he says, you know, I'm hanging here because I deserve it. So what he was taught by the criteria of his life was utterly irrelevant. Except for the one moment when it was the only relevant thing he'd ever been taught. Nothing else he'd ever heard in his entire life was any relevance whatsoever to him as he hung on the cross, except for his basic training in Old Testament theology that he must have received at some point. And I think that's a salutary lesson to preachers about judging what is relevant. And I think it is a salutary and an encouraging lesson to parents about teaching our kids. We cannot judge the impact of what we have taught until it's all over, until the final curtain comes down. What is relevant? I'll tell you what's relevant. Preparing people to die. That is the ultimately the only really relevant thing that a pastor does. Everything else may have passing relevance, but the only thing of eternal relevance is preparing somebody to die. And I think if you hold that in your mind, that will uh, give you a a sober assessment of what is and is not relevant. Next, further task, as we talked about preaching should be relevant and relevance should be determined by the word, we should also say that a further mark of prophetic preaching, and this sounds a bit prosaic, but it should not be boring. The truths of God's holiness, humanity's sin, the cross of Christ might be good news to some, or horribly offensive to others. But they should never be boring. That so many sermons inspire little but tedium in congregations is highly suggestive that their content might not be all that it should be. Don't often quote Karl Barth positively. Here's a great quotation from Karl Barth on preaching. He says this, Preachers must not be boring. To a large extent, the pastor and boredom are synonymous concepts. Listeners often think that they have heard already what is being said in the pulpit. They have long since known it themselves. The fault does not lie with them alone. Against boredom, and this is very interesting from Bart here, against boredom, the only defense is to be biblical. If a sermon is biblical, it will not be boring. Holy Scripture is in fact so interesting and has so much that is new and exciting to tell us that listeners cannot even think about dropping off to sleep.
Isn't that interesting? I sometimes think, maybe we just get, you know, we're always thinking, we're not familiar enough with the Bible. But maybe sometimes we're too familiar with it. We think we know what's coming next. I remember hearing a preacher, he's moved from the Philadelphia area, he's church planting in, I think it's Nebraska now, best preacher I ever heard. And I used to say to my wife when he'd hear him preach, he'd come away and say, you know, I feel as if I've, he preached on a familiar passage, and I feel I never read that passage before in my life. It's as if I'd never seen that passage before in my life. Bart calls it the strange new world of the Bible. Preaching should not be boring. Note what Bart does not say. He does not say that the answer to the boredom of the congregation is to make the presentation more interesting by telling jokes, anecdotes, or exciting stories. No, the way to make the sermon more interesting is to be biblical. I'm no fan of Bart's theology, but I wonder who on this point is more faithful to the biblical notion of preaching. The evangelical Protestant who spends the first ten minutes of every sermon entertaining his flock... Or the man who says that interest is generated by putting more, not less, Bible into what you say. Finally, to be prophetic, preachers need to communicate to their people that preaching is not simply communication of information, this is where I started, or exhortation to action, but involves the very presence of God in and through his words. Wouldn't we be more excited about going to church if we thought that there we were going to meet with God in a special way? Wouldn't we be more frightened about not bothering to go to church if we thought that God was going to be specially present there and we were to be absent? The Dutch theologians J. Van Genderen and H.J. Vellema, they've written this great book. It's called A Concise Reform Dogmatics. It's a thousand pages long. If you can imagine what a non-concise Dutch reform <laughs> theology must look like. Concise reform theology. Why would I go to church, they ask? One of the answers to this question, given by Van Ruhle, another Dutch theologian, although in his view it is not the most important one, is that we go there to receive salvation in all of its forms and variations. The mediation of salvation of Christ is the work of the Holy Spirit in us, but the Spirit engages helpers. In a sermon, God in Christ comes up to us with his grace. When I have to some extent discovered myself to be a sinner, as being lost and in the wrong, it is hard to believe that there is mercy for me. Preaching continually opens up new vistas. The spirit is enriched and the heart is filled. Those who have once truly tasted something of the mystery of redemption seek to hear the gospel over and over again. End quotation. Sometimes get students at Westminster come to my office and they'll say, oh, Dr. Truman, you know, I'm struggling with my faith. I lack assurance, da-dum, 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 or I'm struggling with this sin. My first question is always, how's church going at the moment? And if they say to me, well, I haven't been there for four weeks, I click into my most pastorally sensitive mode and I say, well, clear off. Get yourself back to church. Go there for four weeks. And if you've still got a problem, come back and talk to me then. But I can't counsel you if you're not even doing the basics. It's like somebody coming to you and saying, I'm really, really hungry. I'm starving. Well, have you eaten recently? No. <laughs> Go and eat. And if you're still hungry after you've eaten, then maybe there's a medical condition. Maybe you need specialist care. Those who come to church with the thought that they are to meet God there in the reading and preaching of his word will have a very different attitude to those who come seeking a theological lecture or moral exhortation. They will come to listen, to worship, and to respond. 
They will come to church in order to be the church, the body of Christ and the temple of the Holy Spirit. It's perhaps a fitting end uh, to a lecture to, uh, particularly, he's not exactly from my homeland, he's a Scotsman, but he spent much of his teaching career in England. Quote from a, a great British theologian, Peter Taylor Forsyth, who wrote what I think is the greatest book on preaching in the history of the church, Positive Preaching and the Modern Mind. P.T. Forsyth begins that book with the following statement. He says this, It is perhaps an overbold beginning, but I will venture to say that with its preaching, Christianity stands or falls. End quote. Given all that I've said above, that preaching is prophetic, that it connects to the doctrine of God and the doctrine of Scripture, that it is God's means of action and presence in the church, that it is not explaining the Bible or simply encouraging people to behave better. I think it is not an overbold ending to say that only as individual churches and denominations address both their understanding of preaching and its content, they cannot stand but will most certainly fall. So let us focus once again on the education and training, not of therapists, life coaches and general managers, but of preachers, those tasked with bringing us the living word of God. Thank you for listening.